Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us today at Heritage. We have a um, not only exciting panel, but an exciting format. Um, I think you'll really, really enjoy where we have a paper presentation followed by some responses to that presentation. So today we're going to think about what I think are, are two sort of conflicting issues in ed policy that we've seen over the past three decades in particular, standards-based reform and education choice. And so these are two very different approaches to education reform that have been advanced over the past 30 years in particular. One, as I mentioned, the standards-based reform push can be traced most clearly to the early 1990s on the heels of a pretty high-profile education conference in 1989 in Charlottesville, Virginia. It was at that conference that governors from across the country came together to discuss setting standards that would drive school improvement across the country, born out of a sense of ever-increasing spending at the federal level, and that that spending necessitated accountability, particularly in the years following the famous A Nation at Risk report. So the idea here, in the standards-based reform side, was to create broad national goals for what every student should learn, and that a more centralized approach to education could be leveraged to drive school improvement. Now, it is about 836 miles from Charlottesville, Virginia, to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Just mere months after that conference in Charlottesville, and about 1,000 miles north, the Wisconsin legislature took a very different approach to education reform, approving the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program, the first modern-day school voucher program. The idea here, in contrast to the other idea, was to actually empower families to choose for themselves schools that fit the needs of their children and to drive overall school reform through choice and competition. It was the realization of the theoretical argument put forward by Milton Friedman back in 1955 that, quote, the administration of schools is neither required by the financing of education nor justifiable in its own right in a predominantly free enterprise society. So which of these approaches is winning out? The Obama administration used a carrot-and-stick approach to get 46 states to adopt common core national standards and tests. But at the same time, we now have 29 states and the District of Columbia that have some form of private school choice in place for families. So to think through this tension, we have two speakers to discuss their new paper, which you had outside, Common Core School Choice and Rethinking Standards-Based Reform. So we'll hear from these two speakers first. Tedra Barber is CEO and founder of Accountability Works. Accountability Works is a nonprofit organization dedicated to assisting states, schools, parents, and reform-minded organizations in implementing high-performance accountability and assessment systems. Then we'll hear from Neil McCluskey, who is the director of Cato of the Cato Institute's Center for Educational Freedom. He is also the author of the book Feds in the Classroom, How Big Government Corrupts, Cripples, and Compromises American Education. And his, he is the co-author of Educational Freedom, Remembering Andrew Coulson Debating His Ideas. So they'll each take about seven minutes to walk through their paper, and then we'll hear from two respondents to their paper. We'll hear first from Patrick Wolf, who is Distinguished Professor of Education Policy and 21st Century Endowed Chair in School Choice in the Department of Education Reform 
at the University of Arkansas. Then we'll hear from Brad Thomas, who is Senior Education Policy Advisor on the House Committee on Education and the Workforce. Uh, great to have Brad here today as well, considering uh, changes that could be afoot, so you can talk to him about that as well. But to start us off and to frame the conversation is Jamie Gass. Jamie is the Pioneer Institute's Director of the Center for School Reform. At Pioneer, he has framed, commissioned, and managed over 100 research papers and numerous policy events on K-12 education reform topics, including several with Pulitzer Prize-winning historians. Jamie has more than two decades of experience in public administration and education reform at the state, municipal, and school district levels. Please join me in welcoming Jamie and our panelists. Uh, so welcome, and, and thank you, Lindsay, for that uh, very uh, gracious uh, uh, introduction and for uh, hosting the event today, as well as all the work that you have done uh, on the Common Core fight over the years. Really uh, grateful for the support that Heritage uh, and you have uh, helped provide. So uh, to give you a little bit of context, uh, I, I work for Pioneer Institute. It's a Boston-based think tank. Uh, we really became involved with this debate over Common Core uh, eight years ago, uh, going on almost nine years ago, for two reasons. Uh, given the performance of Massachusetts, uh, and and we had the most to lose, and the grave concerns that we had about the likely growing federal role that was going to come out of Common Core and Race the Top uh, reforms. So this year is the 25th anniversary of the landmark Massachusetts Education Reform Act, which was a bipartisan effort uh, in Massachusetts, which coupled together... Um, the highest, what ultimately proved to be the highest standards, the best quality tests, best quality teacher tests, uh, uh, the best achievement uh, closing gap, charter schools, folk tech schools, uh, uh, as well as helping to, I think, drive the improvement that we've seen in the last uh, 20 years or so in the Catholic schools in Massachusetts. Uh, this landmark reform really has led to historic gains. Really, every measure of academic achievement, whether it's NAEP over the last 13 years, or uh, whether it's uh, TIMS or PISA, uh, it really is, in certain regard, made Massachusetts the envy of uh, of the country, and again, the only state that can be claimed to be globally uh, competitive in math and science. A major lesson, really, from that reform was that it was all state and locally driven. There was no real federal role whatsoever uh, at all, and. Uh, part of the thing that began to make us concerned about uh, Common Core is, is that uh, on some level we had the Common Core and national standards advocates and uh, um, the race at the top trying to tell us how to do ed reform after we had really spent uh, a tremendous amount of money and time and, and effort to um, to succeed uh, at it. So uh, given the, what Pioneer uh, and, and uh, Massachusetts had at stake, we decided to look at the academic standards. We had Sandy Stotsky and Jim Milgram, two uh, respected standards experts, look at the standards. We had Ken Talbert and Bob Itell look at the federal laws, and it turns out there are three federal laws that were required uh, by the Common Core advocates to be brushed aside in order to get states to adopt, um, uh, which is not a terribly great lesson for kids in terms of civics. Uh, but Ted and his team also took a look at the costs, and it turns out that the costs around Common Core were absolutely astronomical and largely hidden from the, the general public. All that work that we had done over the last uh, you know, eight, uh, eight years or so culminated in a book that we did in 2015 called Drilling Through the Core, which sort of framed and discussed and, and, and uh, encapsulated all the work we had done. Um, but at Pioneer, we're school choice advocates. That's really what um, drives us and is what we're most interested in, both private and public school choice, uh, most notably our, our uh, high, you know, really high-performing uh, charter schools. Uh, so the one paper that we felt like we hadn't yet done was this paper about, this, uh, about the Common Core and how it related to school choice. Uh, we were also uh, informed by the fact that in the 20-some-odd states that we went to around Common Core, it was pretty clear that the private school and parochial school parents constituted a huge portion of not only the audiences of the events, but also were the major drivers of the opposition. Uh, and I just want to mention a couple people because they're mentioned in the paper and they were really terrific. So Heather Crossan and Aaron Tuttle from Indiana, 
Jenny White from Oklahoma, uh, Heidi Huber from Ohio, uh, and uh, Elisa Ellis from Utah. Across the country, these moms and these parents really were the backbone of the effort. And as I said, the big lesson for Massachusetts was that the people that are doing the work uh, should own the work. And nothing is more important, I think, to the school choice conversation than the idea of people doing the work, the parents and the students getting to control the work. And that's why we were really so pleased to have uh, Ted and, and Neil and Patrick uh, work on this paper, and I hope it's something that you find uh, uh, informative. Thanks. Thanks, Jamie. Uh, we, um, Neil, Neil and I had a great experience working on this paper. It took a while, but um, it, was a, um, it was a chance to assess uh, not only Common Core, but how we got to Common Core. And, uh, and that's a, a more interesting story, uh, but, uh, uh, because it, it, it's, it lays the groundwork for thinking, where do we go next? because we need to reassess that. It's been a long time that we've been moving in this direction, and Common Core is just the latest chapter. Um, so um, I'll start with Common Core. Common Core was released in 2010, uh, 2010 under the Obama administration early on. It was something encouraged by the Obama administration, but it, but it came out of um, the National Governor Association and, and Chief State School Officers, a group of D.C. DC groups that work with states. Um, and full implementation uh, started in 2014, so it was out, uh, but but really the testing didn't kick in until spring of 2015, and and the full implementation nationwide, adopted by nearly all states, with only a few exceptions, was uh, started in 2014, and um, and so quickly the results have been, um, in, in my view, it's it's really the worst large scale educational failure in 40 years, uh, large scale at the largest scale, which is nationwide. Uh, and so I'll start with some evidence. Now, before I, before I describe that, let me just tell you that we've been creeping up. The country, the student achievement in this country has been creeping up very incrementally, very marginally for as long as we've had test results, reliable test results uh, since the early 70s. Uh, and uh, what we've seen with Common Core... I don't know to what degree you can see it, but this is the National Assessment uh, of Educational Progress, Common Core, the orange line introduced in 2010, and you can see the slight incline, even if you can't see the numbers before that. Uh, these are the, um, the, the most negative effect has been on the students already behind, the students that were touted as the target for improvement. And so this is the 25th percentile students, students in the bottom quartile, um, and so they had been creeping up, and then that movement largely stops uh, when Common Core is released, and then you actually start to see declines. Uh, and that decline continued uh, 2014, uh, uh, 2011, excuse me, um, and, uh, and, and since then in the most recent results uh, just released. And so um, that's historic. We've never seen these kinds of declines. Uh, and more recently... The ACT results uh, were also released looking back several years, and you can also see these are the, the higher-achieving students uh, taking the ACT to go on to college. You can see Common Core released. The, the, these are tenths of a point, so these are not sharp increases or even sharp declines, but you can see the trend line very clearly. Common Core is released. The marginal tenth of a point increases that have been creeping up before that stop. We start to see declines, and that continues as we get into full implementation. That's never happened uh, uh, at, at a consistent multi-year scale in the best results, uh, best test instruments we've had uh, since, um, since we've been able to measure in, in the 1970s. And so that is historic. Uh, now, before I, before I go into why, um, well, let me, st let me say a little bit why. In the paper, we discuss possible reasons why, and, uh, and, and I focused on this section. Uh, and, and basically, Common Core claimed to address a problem that's very real, uh, and that it was backed by a lot of the business community, and it claimed to address 
the internationally uncompetitive uh, achievement of our students, uh, particularly in math and science, although Common Core focused on, focused on math and reading, and that's a very real issue. And so these are results from uh, the latest, one of the most recent international studies of student achievement. And uh, these are the percent of students at eighth grade um, that are actually have the skills by eighth grade to take a math curriculum in high school that will prepare them for a math or STEM-based post-secondary post, uh, education, an engineering degree, a science degree, the kinds of things that our economy needs, that there's a, a general consensus that we're not doing very well. The Asian countries, you can see, are getting between a third and a half of their students by eighth grade prepared to take that kind of college, excuse me, high school math curriculum that can prepare them from a STEM uh, degree in college. We're, we're down in this middle group. We're at 10%. Uh, we're the second one from the bottom of the middle group with Kazakhstan, Hungary, England, um, which it sounds, you know, middle of the pack, doesn't sound that bad. But Singapore gets five times as many of its students at that level. So being in the middle of the pack is not really acceptable. Um, and uh, then uh, not far below that, the, lo the bottom of the pack, Turkey, UAE, Sweden, are really just a few percentage points below us. So we're marginally ahead of the bottom of the pack, far behind the top achieving countries. And, and this relates to an interesting story that just happened in this last election. Right before the election, Governor Walker, who unfortunately lost the election, um, w there was a story that came out that the Foxconn plant, which he'd been touting as a major achievement, and then President Trump had, had brought that manufacturing to, to Wisconsin, that they were going to actually have to bring uh, uh, engineers and others from uh, China and from other countries to work there. So workers from other countries to work there. And this, and this arguably damaged Governor Walker. It was pretty embarrassing. The company denied it. Uh, but there's a grain of truth there that it's going to be challenging to bring a manufacturing that requires a lot, a lot of higher level skills. Some manufacturing skills don't have to be that high, but you do need a lot of engineers and you do need a lot of skills that the, the U.S. currently does not produce. And you see in the, the, the colleges and even more in the post-secondary degrees, heavy foreign student percentage in U.S. programs. And that's largely because we're not providing that level of, of education. So, so it's a very real problem, and, and, and as Lindsay mentioned, uh, it, start, it was recognized way back in the late 80s, uh, and, uh, and there was a consensus to do something. Um, and, and so what, what happened with Common Core, and I'll be very brief because it's go, going into detail in the paper and I want to get to other issues. Common Core um, argued that it was going to raise the, the, the rigor of the math program. Uh, in fact, it, it just calcified the existing rigor of the math program. Instead of uh, other countries uh, accomplish the Algebra 1 and Geometry content that we start in ninth and 10th grade by the end of 8th, the, the high-achieving countries, two years behind. And that was recognized by the authors of Common Core. The final product also ends up starting Algebra in ninth grade. So it did nothing, uh, the main track, to, to accelerate that. So what did it actually do? And uh, we go into detail in the paper, but uh, really they ended up pushing some progressive educational uh, dogmas on methods uh, uh, and in terms of delaying the introduction of standard, standard algorithms and, and arithmetic and other methods that are enforced through the tests. Um, but this is really just the latest um, uh, element in, in what's a much longer uh, track, which is curriculum standards-based reform, uh, which was implemented by congressional mandate uh, some states had experimented with it, California in the 80s, but it was implemented by congressional mandate uh, through the Improving America Schools Act in 1994, the Clinton administration. Uh, it started uh, to be pushed in the Bush, first Bush administration, and, and I have to admit I worked on that in the first Bush administration. I'm a sort of recovering uh, proponent of that approach. Um, and and um, the reason we moved to Common Core is because uh, the, the results did not meet the promises we did not improve in international competitiveness. These are just the latest results, but you can see these results uh, many years back. There's been maybe marginal improvements, but relative to other countries, we did not improve. Um, and, and so uh, the, this is an example. The, these are the results, uh, which I don't know if you can see, 1994 when we introduced the congressional mandate that all state governments uh, 
develop what are called curriculum standards um, and uh, and make those mandatory in all local schools within each jurisdiction. They later adopted Common Core because they were not satisfied with the results of the state versions. Um, but standards historically never meant uh, very detailed government regulation of curriculum content, curriculum sequencing, and teaching methods. Historically, standards just meant high standards. Teachers have high expectations for their student on score, on grading, on behavior. These are the kinds of things that parents have historically understood that to mean. But that, that word was, was, I would argue, hijacked to actually be used to, to describe very detailed government regulation of curriculum, teaching methods, sequencing content, all the way down to kindergarten. And so that's what we got. Um, and the argument was made, actually right here at Heritage, by the proponent of, uh, one of the proponents of that approach, Chester Finn, um, that, that this curriculum standards approach with testing to enforce it, to ensure that teachers follow it, um, would, 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 or, or, uh, you could be synchronized with choice. That uh, the curriculum standards are really a way of just having rigorous tests, and the testing would inform the choosers in a marketplace, and they would make good choices, and they would push schools to compete. That's not at all what actually happened. What actually happened, and we document this in the paper, is that the curriculum standards are not an after-the-fact uh, uh, information that choosers use or states use to hold schools accountable. They actually become the blueprint around which schools organize their teaching, their day-to-day -day academic operations. They're effectively curriculum-central planning by government, uh, originally at the state level, and then they doubled down when it didn't get the results they wanted with Common Core. The, the test scores had been improving. What I wanted to show in this graph, which is a little faint, but the, the middle line there, which is highlighted eighth grade with the orange line, those are the test score gains from 1978. And so when people say we were seeing some small improvements under curriculum standards-based reform, those actually started... In the, in the early in, in the 70s, as far as back as we can measure, and they did not improve or accelerate when curriculum standards-based reform was introduced in the early 90s. The very small marginal gains continued at the same pace. They were probably related to other factors. They were not impacted in any way and accelerated by curriculum standards-based reform. And we are now seeing with Common Core an actual reduction and, and declines. And so that's what we've, we've gotten in school choice, and Neil's going to talk about that in a little more detail, but I just want to wrap up. Um, school choice is a fundamentally different approach. It offers the possibility for innovation in curriculum in, um, in, in implementing more rigorous curriculum like we've seen in other countries. In, in other approaches, there are other values we care about when parents choose schools. It's not just uh, internationally competitive math. But it, but at least opens that possibilities. Unlike the curriculum standards-based approach, which just calcified the sort of low expectations and some of the progressivist uh, instructional dogmas that are already pretty dominant in the schools of education. And so that so so instead of being able to do that, what we're seeing is a number of the school choice programs, particularly the ones that involve public funding, are actually importing this heavily regulated curriculum model. Uh, into the private schools, because as a as a condition of receiving public funds, uh, in the in the right uh, pie graph, you see sixty three percent of the state uh, school choice programs that involve public funding, not tax credits, mandate a specific curriculum based test, curriculum standards based test, as a condition of receiving funds. And teachers uh, pay attention to that because these tests are not like the old norm reference tests, which are designed to be somewhat neutral in curriculum. These tests are specifically designed to drive curriculum and teaching methods. And we go into a lot of detail in the paper on how they do that. And on the other hand, tax credits, 95% of them do not. And that's because it's not public money and, and there's, a, a, you know, there's less of a uh, political impasse, impetus to have, quote, accountability for public dollars. And so... Um, that's one of the methods. There are other more indirect methods that Neil's going to address. But we have to be careful as we introduce school choice uh, to not import the increased centralization in, in curriculum and teaching that we've seen in the public schools and threaten private schools' curriculum autonomy. Thank you. I guess.
<laughs> I'm trying to think of the logistics of how to get over there. So I'm going to go this way, and then you go ahead. There we go. Ted and I didn't rehearse how to get up here, so that's why it seems sort of ad hoc. Yeah, so one thing we didn't talk about ahead of time, but we, I want to thank everyone, but especially Ted, uh, for this paper. I hope that you all read the paper. We're just giving you sort of a quick overview. And all I want to do is give you maybe a little bit of food for thought about what the federal role should or should not be when it comes to school choice, and just a reminder of why school choice is so important. And then if we want to get into lots of details, we can do that during question and answer. Uh, I also, uh, I was, a, I may just seem totally scatterbrained today because I didn't even know how to get to this podium. Uh, but I left my prepared remarks sitting on a printer on the fourth floor at the Cato Institute. Right now, somebody is probably giving those remarks somewhere else and taking credit for them. Um, but really, I, I only have a few really important things to drive home. And first and foremost, Choice is fundamentally at odds with the idea of standardization. And choice is itself about freedom and diversity, pluralism, for individual people, families, communities, to be able to lead their own lives, to, to get out of education what they think is important. Um, and that can be uh, not... It can be about, are you getting the religious instruction you want? Is your education um, uh, enforcing the culture that you think is important, that's part of your family? Uh, and it can also be about pedagogy, how education is delivered. That's what Common Core is largely about, is is this the way we want education to be? Do we even want an education system for our children uh, that is where we decide that the right outcome is whatever a test tells us? Or should we be thinking that maybe these tests don't tell us what we want? Maybe they're not giving us good information, as Pat Wolf has shown and others, about long-term outcomes. Maybe we're not all that fixated on whether or not we move test scores. The point here is that choice enables all sorts of different ways of looking at the world, looking at education, and what we value to have equal status, to be on a level playing field and not be sort of dictated from on high what everybody and everything should look like. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about what the federal government should do in this regard because, you know, we just, if you hadn't heard, just had an election a couple of days ago. Um, and I think that part of the warning of what we should have is Ted talked about this history of moving more and more toward this standardized curriculum, standards-based reform, which moved its way up from sort of, you know, we were letting local districts make decisions about what to teach, how to teach it. Uh, the federal government got involved. This actually led to states doing more of this, and ultimately the federal government moved us to the point where they were saying you have to have standards, tests, and we're going to tell you what those standards and tests are going to be based on. Um, and so federalism is a big part of this story. And I, I just want to give a warning that school choice is really important, but federalism exists also to protect freedom. We generally have the idea that government should only do what a higher level of government has to do. The Constitution is the federal government gives it specific enumerated powers and nothing else because it was decided that must be done at the national level. Everything else should be done lower, as close to the people that the institutions are supposed to serve as you can get. And so we even want to be very careful about what we allow the federal government to do in terms of school choice. We want to be very careful because, one, federalism exists to keep people from doing things we don't like, but that also means we have to say we don't want the federal government to violate the Constitution because it's going to do something we do like. Um, but federalism also protects us. Uh, and a good example of this, as we talk about in the paper, comes from the Common Core. Not only is there a danger when the federal government does something where they will directly um, regulate what you do. So if we have a federal school choice program, one of the first problems, first concerns is, if you take that money, you have to take the regulations. You have to take the tests. But the other problem that we talk about in the paper, and you can read it for more detail, is the public schools are about 90% of the K-12 through market. And if the federal government says, okay, just public schools, you must follow specific curricula and use specific tests, that means the whole market of textbooks and tests moves in that direction, crowding out things that are different that the private schools could have used, and we need to think about that. And I give one warning. Um, 
the charter, there's, uh, the charter school community, schools of choice, not private schools, but charter schools, which are schools of choice, get money from the federal government, $440 million. And there were hearings in June, I think it was, and the, the, at the time, the minority on the Education Workforce Committee, the Democrats, talked about, we've really got to make sure that this money is used well. And that means there are lots of charter schools, especially for-profit schools, that probably shouldn't get this. We have now set up charter schools, and we talked about this a little bit, um, where they are increasingly in a position where they are relying on that federal money and they will have to take federal controls. And we should be very clear about the danger that whenever there's this federal money that we get this control. And so we want to avoid any sort of national school choice. It's okay in D.C. because D.C., the Constitution gives the federal government authority to govern D.C. And it's if it goes badly, at least it's restricted to D.C. And there are a couple of other, the military, uh, possibly Native American reservations or places where the federal government should be involved. But those aren't national rules, national laws. Those are for specific places. And aside from keeping the federal government out, uh, Ted and I lay this out again more in the paper, but I just thought I'd run through real fast sort of a hierarchy of what should be done at the state level. First and foremost, if you can get tax credits, which are, it's really about people's personal money, not government money, or money the government takes from a taxpayer and redirects. This is somebody freely choosing whether to donate to a group that gives scholarships and often choosing what kind of group that is. That, if you can get that sort of tax credit, that maximizes freedom for funders. And if you get it so that they can give it to, to organizations who give it to kids who take it to schools that don't, as a result of taking those kids, have a testing requirement, that is ideal. Because this is, tax credits tend to be most immune to this. Again, because the, it's not the government taking your money, it's you freely choosing. But the first, type of program you would want at the state level is a tax credit with no testing requirement. The accountability comes from parents choosing and from donors choosing. The next best thing you can do is tax credits if you have to have some sort of testing requirement because that's what's necessary to get it passed. Let the schools choose the test. Maybe you go back to maybe the original model that Checker Finn talked about where we're requiring some information be available, but we're not saying what it has to be. This is what the school stands for. Just put out something that says, yes, we're meeting our goals. Then, next in this sort of hierarchy is, if you have to go with the voucher program, or brief explanation, basically the state takes money from taxpayers to pay for education and then lets parents decide where that goes, where that goes, you want to do that without a testing requirement. Again, because you want to maximize the freedom of the families and the schools. Tax credits also maximize the, f the freedom of the funders, but at least maximize the freedom of the families and the schools. Then finally, if you can't get that, but you can get a voucher program with the testing requirement, again, let the school decide what the test is. Uh, ultimately, and this is really the point that I want to leave you with, and that's much more in the paper, Freedom must be at the heart of education policy. Thanks. Great. Well, thanks to you both. You can squeeze behind me there. And uh, Ted's going to give a little 30-second addendum, but before he does that, so Neil, what I hear you saying is a tax credit financed ESA is really the way to go. I forgot to mention ESAs. But <laughs> yes, that would be very nice. In fact, there may be a Cato paper about that. Yeah. Ted? Just very briefly. Um, I mean, I, I, I may kneel, uh, lean a little more than Neil that there are some things the feds can do, uh, particularly uh, not public funding, but on tax credits or tax deductions uh, and uh, building on the model that uh, uh, Ted Cruz was able to insert, uh, expanding the 529 plans to allow deductions for K-12 education. Uh, perhaps that does not go through the Federal Department of Education. It stays in the, through the Treasury. Uh, it, it's, it's much less likely to, to have education strings attached to it. It goes directly to, to taxpa taxpayers, not through uh, state education bureaucracies either. Uh, and so maybe building on that a little more is one option. And then briefly on the curriculum centralization, the, um, since the late 80s when I started working on education issues uh, in D.C., conservatives, many conservatives have been saying, let's just abolish the Department of Education and get the federal government out of education. And there's been zero progress on that. 
Now, much as I would like to see that happen, I think we also need to uh, address some surgical changes that are achievable politically that can make an enormous difference. And so, for example, the congressional mandate that I mentioned earlier uh, that mandates that states enforce a single set of curriculum standards, very detailed curriculum on every school in their state, are in the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which is up for reauthorization 2020, an election year. And if all Congress did to tweak that is to make that flexible so states can decide, not bar states from doing it, but allow states to decide whether they're going to have that level of curriculum centralization at the state level or allow local schools and charter schools and schools of choice to select a test that aligns with their curriculum. Um, that would be a huge, huge improvement. So we need to uh, push on the on the big uh, goal, of course, but we also need to address some very surgical changes to make massive difference. Can, can I just say, Ted didn't blindside me with this craziness about maybe the federal government should have some role. Uh, we actually talked about it, so this, this wasn't a stabbing in the back or anything. Great. So now we will uh, hand it over to, to Patrick and to Brad. Whoever wants to kick it off, feel free. So uh, Dr. Burke uh, described my ridiculously fulsome titles, uh, but she, she left off one. I'm, I'm, the I'm the director of graduate studies in the Department of Education Reform at the University of Arkansas. So I have to start with a brief commercial for our program. Uh, it's, it's, it's wonderful and unique. It's the only reform-oriented uh, doctoral program in education policy in the country, and we focus on, on major... Uh, uh, education reform topics, and strong social science analytic training. Uh, so if you get if you have the fire in your belly to get a doctorate, please talk to me or talk to Dr. Corey DeAngelis, one of our recent uh, terrific graduates of our program. But I didn't come to here come here to to sell our program. I, I came here to speak about this really uh, compelling paper that Ted and Neil put together on Common Core versus school choice. My original scholarly discipline was public administration. I was interested in the operation of government organizations. And I quickly learned that the most ubiquitous and you could argue the most impactful government organizations are schools, are public schools. So I started studying schools and I started studying the governance of schools and that led me to school choice. But while I was uh, a public administration scholar, while I lived in that world, I was struck by a book by Paul Light called The Tides of Reform. Light argued that administrative reform takes the the shape of the distinctive shape of, of four different models and it's like a tide. It it like rolls onto the beach and it, it changes things around a little bit and it leaves a lot of junk on the beach and then it recedes. The four tides that that light identified are scientific management, watchful eye, war on waste, and liberation management. The most interesting of those four are the bookends. So scientific management came uh, out of Frederick Winslow Taylor, who was a, a famous uh, industrialist at the start of the 20th century. And the principles of scientific management are that managers and overseers know best. The experts know best. They know how services should be delivered to people, and they should develop standards, procedures, and structure for how the people operating in the trenches should provide services. So it's very much command and control, one size fits all. Liberation management, in contrast, argues we should align incentives for the people delivering services to produce desirable outcomes and then just leave it to them to figure out how to do it. So it's very adaptable, very dynamic, um, and allows for a lot of, 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 di of distinctiveness in how different organizations and different individuals deliver services. So you might imagine when Jamie uh, asked me to review uh, the paper uh, prior to its publication, I got really excited by the content because I said, Common Core, wow, that's straight out scientific management. That's, that's, that's what, what the, the reformers were trying to do is, is standardize and direct 
the delivery of educational services. And school choice is classic liberation management. It's sort of letting uh, incentives and, and market principles work and freeing up the providers of services to, to figure things out for the students they are educating. So, so I wrote about that in, in my introduction. I think it's an interesting way to think about these two competing reform movements. Um, and with that, I'm going to hand it over to Brad. Thank you. It's good to be here. I feel a little bit out of place because I don't have PhD after my name. Um, but I, I thank you for Come the, to our the program. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, can I get a voucher? Yes, yes, um, give scholarships. So I, I, um, I, I, it is good to be here. I was struck um, in reading the paper and listening to the conversation that it seems to me we really have related but distinct conversations going on here that that I think are all. Uh, very important. You have a conversation about the wisdom of standards-based reform in, in all of its forms. You have a conversation about the wisdom of Common Core as a particular iteration of standards-based reform. You have a, conver a conversation about the wisdom and value of school choice. And you have a conversation sort of overarching everything about the federal role in, in education. So um, I was struck that we've, we've sort of combined a lot of these things into one conversation, but they're also distinct conversations in and of themselves um, that, that don't always mesh well together. I, I want to talk a little bit about the federal role in education specifically first, um, because I think a lot of, I think the paper and the conversation today raises a lot of important uh, points about what should or shouldn't be in, in um, federal law. My boss, Chairwoman Fox, is one of those who would absolutely abolish the Department of Education and, and remove the federal government from education entirely if she could wave a, a magic wand and make that happen. As Ted said, uh, the political realities are such that we can't do that, so we try to, we try to think through what are practical ways that we can um, address a lot of the concerns that, that have been raised about the negative consequences of, of federal involvement in, in education. The Every Student Succeeds Act um, it did that, um, not perfectly, and, and, and there are certainly criticisms, criticisms about it. We tried to address the common core issue specifically. We tried to address, uh, a lot of the negative incentives that led from standards-based reform generally to common core specifically, namely the outsized role that reading and math tests had on the evaluation of schools and then the prescriptive um, cascading federal interventions that schools were forced to undergo when they were labeled as failing. There's more work that can be done, and, and, and as, as has been said, the, the reauthorization of the Every Student Succeeds Act will be up relatively soon, and, and this paper adds a lot to the conversation about what that should look like going forward. Uh, I, I, do, I do worry a little bit about setting standards-based reform writ large against school choice as competing policy choices. I think, I think there's a risk in, in doing that. I take the, the author's points that standardization and choice are um, on some level competing poles, uh, but I actually think they can be done in concert. I think Jamie laid out uh, the reality of the effectiveness of standards-based education in Massachusetts prior to the Common Core. Um, there's been a lot of talk about the origins of standards-based reform, uh, the, the federal legislative involvement in standards-based reform certainly began in the early 90s, but standards-based reform itself really began um, a decade before that with Bill Bennett and President Reagan's report a nation at risk. So I think there's value in standards-based reform. I think there's more work that needs to be done right-sizing um, the federal involvement in that and balancing uh, the influence of standards-based reform on school choice policy. And, and I think we want to be, be a part of that where, uh, where necessary and uh, where we don't create more problems than we solve.
Well, thank you, everyone. Um, we will open it up to questions. If you have a question, uh, wait for the mic to come around. Thank you, Mary Claire. And uh, so that way the video can, can pick you up. So just raise your hand if you've got one. Wondering if you could. Oh, sorry. Uh, hi, I was wondering if you could um, compare like Common Core with other sort of um, curriculums that are preset by a larger organization, like AP testing, IB, A levels, etc., and why Common Core fails with respect to those organizations and curriculums. Ted, the um, a couple things. The the curriculums. Uh, and curriculum standards developed for AP and IB, International Baccalaureate. Um, first of all, there are increasing problems with the Advanced Placement Program. There's been controversy over their U.S. history and some of the other subjects, and so there are issues with that. But they were not developed by a government agency. And, and in the U.S., at least, that, that creates particular issues because it devolves into a political process, and certain interest groups tend to dominate government bureaucratic procedures in the U.S. Uh, in some countries, uh, government curriculum has been able to be successful in raising achievement. In other countries, it is not. Uh, the studies show that there's really no relationship uh, between which countries have national curricula and which countries don't in terms of raising student achievement. Um, and, and so it, it really depends on the quality of what's done and the government's role. And there's a lot more that could be said in detail, um, but we're, I want to make clear that I'm not arguing against any kind of curriculum or curriculum standards-based reform development and testing. Our, our own organization provides online testing to school districts, um, but the issue comes when you don't allow a school system to select the test that matches their curriculum. When schools choose IB, for example, they're choosing that curriculum and they're choosing an aligned test that fits that curriculum. It's not like they have to change their test and shoehorn it into a curriculum-based test that they didn't choose, that they're forced to comply with. And so that's a fundamentally different approach. And I think it also uh, points a direction to um, at least a, a possible path uh, towards what Brad was talking about was which was thinking of ways that curriculum standards-based reform can be rethought and the federal mandates can be changed so that states that want to do that could allow schools, local schools. Uh, President Trump argued when he, when he ran for the election he wanted to return education to a local level, and the real local level is local schools, not state governments. Um, and so allowing local school systems, charter schools and others, to choose the exam that aligns with their curriculum, even from a state-approved list, that's a long list with diverse curriculum, would go a long way towards um, uh, no longer having the testing tail wagging the curriculum dog. Can I, can I, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, what I wanted to say, so, um, I mean, the first thing is, is that it, we mapped out in sort of line and verse the differences between the previous Massachusetts standards that had led to all these historic gains and Common Core, and the sort of the big takeaways were uh, Common Core cut classic literature, poetry, and drama by, you know, about uh, 70, 80 percent. That was how Massachusetts reading scores excelled so so much. And then on the math side, uh, Common Core ignored all the evidence from Massachusetts, California, and all the high-performing East Asian countries that you need to have access to Algebra 1 and the 8th grade. That's the gateway for all, all higher-level mathematics. Common Core ignores that. So even if you're just looking at state standards, they ignored the evidence of what works both nationally and internationally. But you, in a way, you touched on something that I think is, in some respects, more ominous about Common Core, is that the head of, of the college board is David Coleman, and he was the architect of Common Core. And so now SAT and AP and their competitor, ACT, are all aligned with Common Core. And this really cuts to the core, no pun intended, whether you're a homeschooling kid or a charter school kid or a voc tech school uh, kid or private or parochial school kid, you're going to have to take the SAT or you're going to have to take the AP, and those are common core aligned. Now, one of the things I think that folks could look at is that, of course, the college board gets uh, a federal subsidy, right? So the federal government still is, in a way, subsidizing kids to take, the, uh, to take uh, SAT and AP, and that could be looked at. That could be reviewed. 
I would just uh, real quick add an irony to all this. So the Common Core was sold as uh, it's going to really emphasize sort of concrete content. E.D. Hirsch, who's famous for core knowledge, was a supporter of Common Core. And he said, the reason I really like this is because it talks about concrete content. But one thing you notice is clearly missing, especially from the English language arts part, is concrete content. It doesn't prescribe much of anything to read, unlike AP and IB. And the reason for this is because for it to be at all politically viable, if you put concrete content in it, there are lots of things for people to say, I don't want my child exposed to this. So the Common Core sort of thought process was, well, to make this viable, we actually have to remove all that content that we think is so important. Whereas if you can choose a test like AP or IB or lots of other options, because there are big problems with AP and IB, if you want that content, it has to be chosen because then you're not having to satisfy, or maybe I should say try not to dissatisfy, every different group. People who want a particular thing can then get it. So by trying to force what was supposed to be really content-heavy, rigorous standards, they re almost required that those standards not actually be content-heavy or rigorous. And just briefly, there's a difference between the English reading and the math. The math is very content-heavy. It defines the content in extraordinary detail, and and that's what I focused on earlier. The, as, as Neil mentions, the, the reading or English standards do step back on the literature content, and in fact, but they do broadly prescribe or or, or push less literature at a broad level without specifying it. So that's a controversial aspect. But the math curriculum standards, the Common Core and what states do, are very detailed on the content. So we have time for a couple of other questions. In front here. This is working? Okay, cool. So I, I sense some disagreement on the panel, so I always like to bring up the one question that causes some uh, disagreement on the panel. So I heard a little bit of disagreement about the intersection between top-down accountability, standards, standardized testing, or whatever it may be, and uh, private school choice. So everybody knows my take on this, So, but I want to hear, you know, it, either your main arguments for why this there can be benefits between this intersection or the main costs of of trying to combine these two approaches. So you're saying how uh, standards and choice can coexist? Yes. Do you either think there's huge costs associated with that and go over maybe some of those costs, or if you think that it's actually beneficial to have both of them uh, lay out those arguments? Well, let, let me jump in here and make the argument that I often hear from my European colleagues, because in Europe, the countries of Europe tend to have a lot more school choice, private school choice, government-funded private school choice, uh, but they also have um, sort of national curricula that that all schools, including private schools, have to follow. And the supporters of that arrangement justify it in terms of, well, if you have a lot of school choice, you have kids switching schools a lot, and it's less of a shock and an easier adjustment if they're getting the same content in the same sequence, regardless of the school sector that, that they are in. So, so it is justified in European circles as as facilitating making making school choice less disruptive because the content doesn't change the the um, the question is an excellent one accountability is often the argument uh, accountability for public dollars if somebody's going to receive public dollars um, in case of federal dollars even a local education authority or a state in the case of school choice a private school the arguments made that there ought to be, quote, accountability. And that leads to strings and government regulation. And and so I think we have to look at what, what does accountability really mean. And, and briefly, um, that's one of the reasons we recommend tax credits over public dollars for school choice, because when they're still considered parents' own dollars or the donations of private donors to scholarships, uh, and they get a credit, there is much less of a political impetus for that. Um, but in the case of public dollars to local public schools or even public dollars for school choice, um, what, what, I, what I think we should recognize is 
that the main accountability, at least in terms of school choice, ought to come from parents ensuring that, that their children are getting a decent education and the option to choose to go somewhere else. And there is a role for accountability when it's public dollars, but it ought to be much more limited. It shouldn't extend into a curriculum, a single curriculum-specific test that mandates effectively, as we've seen, a particular curriculum and pedagogical approach. And so we've offered some solutions where um, uh, you could have a list, a broad list of a variety of state uh, uh, tests that are on the list, private tests, uh, state tests, and the recipients could choose the one that fits their curriculum. So there are ways to try to make it work. Uh, but, we, but there needs to be a sensitivity that uh, these strings can have enormous intrusion into the core function of the school's curriculum and teaching. The only, the only other point I would add to that is that school choice, where it thrives, it thrives because it's more market-oriented than uh, a traditional public school district. But markets need information. And again, we can debate as to what is the right information, who requires it, how and where it's collected, on and on. There are a lot of specific details there to, to be debated. Um, but parents need information to make choices about which schools to send their children to. So I think there is a pretty clear intersection uh, between the idea of something that parents can observe and look at that gives them information about the quality of the school that they're choosing? I would just say that there's no inherent um, conflict between choice and standards if the standards do not come from government. If the standards do come from government, there's an inherent conflict because somebody is saying, you must choose within these parameters. But we should look outside of education just to see how you can get actually national standardization that doesn't cripple choice. If you think about it, when you go to a restaurant, you know, you're figuring out, well, what am I going to eat tonight? And you say, well, do I feel like burgers uh, or do I feel like a really nice dinner? Well, you can go to a McDonald's if you feel like having just a, a quick burger. And you know that that's going to be pretty standard no matter where you go in the country because it's a franchise. And this national entity says... Part of what enables to stay in business is consistency. But suppose you don't want a burger. Suppose you want, I'm going to have a nice steak dinner. You can go to a Ruth's Chris, which is also a national-level franchise. You can go to one in Dallas. You can go to one in California, wherever. And you're still going to get pretty much the same meal because they have national standards. So we have that standardization. We have something where you could move from one state to another and still get that standard thing without crippling choice because you get to choose which of those meals you're going to have. And even you could choose uh, Olive Garden or somewhere else, all sorts of different levels, but still with the Mom national standard. Yeah, or you could go to the Mom Pop. Now, you may not have the national standardization, your but choice. you may not want that. Right, it's your choice. So, so Neil, we will no... feed you after this. I know that. that. You sound hungry. We will feed you after this. Well, that's my point is that's I would like a meal. <laughs> that's <laughs> the real point. And I want it to be standardized so I know it's going to be good. But So I just want to – the point is that standardization does not – and nationalization doesn't require – Require government to do it. Yeah, and, and just to add on that, Neil's former colleague Jason Bedrick um, has a really good framework using food as well for how to think about that, and basically makes the argument that it's not government that will drive high quality standards, and you'll get far better information from a market if you think about when you shop around for a restaurant. There are different tiers of reviews as well. You can get peer to peer reviews from other folks who have dined at that restaurant by looking at Yelp, right? If you want something a little more formal. You could look at a Zagat guide or does this restaurant have a Michelin star? So there are other more uh, formal review processes as well, but you get all types of levels of reviews that a market will provide, and I would argue far better information. Um, so we'll take one more really quick question, if you can each keep your answers to 30 seconds or so. Yes, ma'am. So in, I, I'm running for school board in Fairfax County, and uh, Fairfax County um, is one, one of the 10 largest counties. And so 
it claims not to have common core, but it obviously has common core for just the reasons that you said, the AP exams, the SAT, the ACTs. Um, and so essentially today, even if you don't have adopted common core, you have common core. And, and recently, um, the college board was dictating to Fairfax County that they need to now have not one, but two years of AP uh, U.S. government or, or world government. And, and the students, by, uh, by the direction of the teachers, were made to work in groups to write papers and present a poster um, advocating against that. Um, so so that, that's just like a, a standard example of the, of the bitter battle that, that's going on. Um, so even if I, I, I homeschooled for years, and even if I homeschooled, my kids are still going to take that, that set of standards. Um, and, and the teachers all use GET curriculum from, from the same websites. And, and you've got this like social studies website where where the teachers go and they download curriculum. And we know that the NGOs and the special interest groups and the NEA, and we know who's funding down, straight down from the UN. Who who's funding those sites? So, so my question like is, the, yeah. My question is, how much of this? You know, you look at those those. Uh, Standards, and we seem to be getting further and further apart from from the Asian countries. But what I what I wanted to know is how much do you look at culture? Because I see that over the last twenty years, our culture has changed, and you've got the race to nowhere being the the really you know we're we're going away from success, whereas the Asians are still looking at success and measuring it in, in the same definitions. And so how much of it is, certainly a lot of it has to do with curriculum and common core, but also how much of it has to do with college acceptance watered down. Great. So who wants to take that? I'll make a yeah. Ted? point. Perfect. So um, when you're comparing countries, culture matters. Uh, at the same time, um, in thinking about policy, uh, we're focusing on what government's doing. And uh, governments encourage culture in indirect ways, but, but the most direct impact it's having on schools is not culture. There, there's a broader media and other factors. So we focused on curriculum here because government policy is what we can directly influence most, not necessarily easily, but 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 in some ways more directly than... than uh, than Hollywood and some of these other broader trends that impact culture. And there's a very real difference in the curriculum uh, in these high-performing countries. It's not all effort. It's not all that their kids are working so much harder. The students in these countries have a curriculum that's comparable to a Lamborghini, and our kids have a tricycle. Uh, and then they're told to try to compete. And, and that is partly caused... By, by the curriculum that they're provided. And, uh, and I think the, in terms of the, the regulation, uh, uh, the common core will decline uh, if the federal government removes some of the mandates that impose on states, and then local schools can appeal to their state governments to do different curriculum. And once lo that local political give and take between the locals and the state governments has been removed by federal mandate, imposing that all states, and states say, we have to do it, it's a federal mandate, or we lose the funds. So if you remove that federal mandate, in a number of these states, the locals will be able to win political battles, to do different things in curriculum, and then that market dominance of Common Core will lessen and create more openness to different approaches. Uh, I would I'll just add, and Ted and I may disagree a little bit on this, but we'll talk about it after, I guess. Um, but uh, I think culture is huge. I actually think culture is the thing that we talk the least about in public policy, and it has a huge impact. Um, and I actually, I, I actually think the culture may have a lot to do with what curriculum you adopt, and if somebody tries to impose it, whether or not it's rejected. Um, but I want to pose that we may not want to be like East Asian countries. We may not want to focus on test scores. Um, 
there's certainly people you hear about in East Asian countries say we can't stand this uh, this monomaniacal focus on test scores and on achievement. And sometimes they say we want to figure out how the United States gets all these entrepreneurs and Nobel Prize winners and sort of creative thinkers. Now I don't I don't know which is the best outcome, but I don't think anybody can say with metaphysical certitude, well, this is what we need or this is what we don't need. Again, that's why choice is so important, to let different concepts of what is the best kind of education compete with each other and let people find what they think is best. I agree. So we don't disagree, so <laughs> never mind. Okay. Any other final thoughts you'd want to add? Yeah. I mean, in the realm of education policy, there are very few certainties. I mean, there are a lot of things that you know we don't know or that we're surprised by. But one of the few that jumps out is that Different children uh, learn and thrive in different ways and in different environments. I mean, I, I don't, I can't tell you how many schools I've visited. I've visited traditional public schools, charter schools, and and private schools, and I walk away from a lot of them saying this school would be great for my younger son, but not my older son, or or the reverse of that. So even if you're just a parent you know that your children are different and they have different educational needs and they're going to succeed in, in different educational programs. And I think that's a real challenge for Common Core. I mean, how does Common Core really deal with the fact of, of the heterogeneity in educational needs for different different kids? Uh, you know, as Neil has intimated, uh, school choice can deal with that a lot better through parents, you know, selecting the, the school that they feel is the best match for their child's needs. Great. Brad, any final thoughts? I'm good. Great. Perfect. Jamie, good? good. Great. Well, please join me in thanking our panelists, and thank you all for being here.